Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that attempts to satirise the past week's political news Something that's made all the easier by news headlines like Boris Johnson opens super sewer. I mean, seriously, that is basically a DIY joke right there. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and you too can get your own Tin and Duyeb name by taking my dad's surname and the first name Tinan. My Tin and Duyeb name is Tin and Duyeb. It totally works, you should try it. This week, I'll be attempting to take a leaf out of the government's book, and I'm going to try and redefine the term satire to only mean things that I do and say on this show, even if they aren't funny. Unfortunately, not only have the House of Lords rejected this idea, they also said, Who are you? Why are you bothering us with this nonsense? And please go away or we'll have you arrested. Still, worth a try, eh? I love the nonsense idea that you can redefine child poverty to not be about income, the entire area that poverty is based on. Why not go all out and just state that from now on, we'll determine age by whatever your hair colour is and weight by how you say the word potato. On this week's podcast, there's some googling, there's a bunch of refugee uh, stuff and a great interview with researcher for disabled people against the cuts, Anita Bellows. But first... Headlines which are mostly about Michaels. Michael. Do you remember Michael Gove? You know, Michael Gove. The one who looked like a sort of possessed ventriloquist dummy and he wanted children to only read books that he likes. Well, him, yeah. Last week, that very same Michael Gove, the current Justice Secretary, he scrapped all the controversial cuts to the legal aid system that had caused barristers and solicitors to take industrial action last year. The cuts were proposed by the last Justice Secretary, Chris Grayling, whose placement in that job was sort of akin to asking a troll to look after your goat herd. Since Gove has taken over as Justice Secretary, he's now reversed six of Grayling's policies, including cancelling letting the Saudi government run our prison system and reversing a ban on prisoners getting sent books. All of which make Michael Gove, yeah that one, actually seem, well, almost quite reasonable. Who'd have thought it? Though, I suppose it's only time before Michael Gove states that the only books prisoners can now get sent are ones that he likes. Michael! In more Michael news, after saying that he is sort of sure that he'd like Britain to leave the EU, probably after his ordeal in Italy with all the minis, actor Michael Caine says politically he is left of Cameron but right of Blair. Worst sandwich ever. Not a Michael! Hillary Benn has jumped on the current Labour MP trend of announcing that he won't be making a bid for the party leadership in a vote that isn't happening. I hope more Labour MPs let us know hypothetical situations in which they aren't doing things as well. You know, like Emily Thornbury says she won't be driving a white van to a non-existent flag race. Or Andy Burnham says he won't be sticking to an opinion in an announcement that anyone cares about. Taking the Michael! 800,000 people have been lost off the electoral register since the government made changes to the system. Most of those losses are in areas of high population, which is where, guess what, Labour does better with seats. 
so it could really affect them in the next election. Add this to the proposed boundary changes, which could reduce MPs from 650 to 600, mostly again affecting Labour, and the short money cuts, meaning that other parties will get reduced funding, again affecting Labour. And it looks like the Conservatives are just making sure that they can't ever, ever get voted out. Terrifying and completely undemocratic. But on the plus side, it means the polls won't be as likely to get predictions wrong ever again. Jeremy Hunt has come under fire from a meningitis charity after he suggested that parents search the internet for diagnoses if their children have a rash. And that's a crazy idea. I mean, how on earth could you tell the difference between an irritating, hard-to-get-rid-of disease and Jeremy Hunt just by looking at pictures of them online? Last week, the Court of Appeal decided that the bedroom tax was, for two cases in particular, discriminatory. The bedroom tax, which is also known as the spare room subsidy or the overcrowding rat experiment but for people, works by cutting residents' benefits for up to 25% for having an extra room in their house that's deemed unnecessary. The criteria for whether or not it's unnecessary has mainly been decided by the Department of Work and Pensions, Lord Freud and that angry thumb with a face, Ian Duncan Smith. And it's been a controversial policy from the start. It wants people to move into smaller homes that don't actually exist. And all in all, it's costing the government a lot of money and damaging a lot of people's lives. So this court decision is a real kick in the face to the DWP, but a very necessary one for human rights. One of the cases is a woman who'd been the victim of an attack and now needs a panic room. The other one is a couple with a 15-year-old disabled child who needed overnight care. Neither of those cases anyone in their right mind would deem as unnecessary space. It should be pointed out that Lord Freud himself has two large homes, one with eight bedrooms, all of which are clearly necessary for him to run around in doing evil maniacal supervillain laughs properly. The government have decided to appeal against the court's decision, as if to say, yeah, the whole point is, it is discriminatory. That's the only reason we're doing it. So, with this and the House of Lords rejecting cuts to the employment support allowance, I thought, who better to speak to this week than an expert on what these developments mean for disabled people? Anita Bellows is a researcher for Disabled People Against the Cuts and is constantly active in the fight against the many policies that seem to be targeted at that one area of society. Anita was lovely enough to let me interrupt her research to ask her many, many questions about it. Once again, this interview contains... Today, there is a good three minutes of echo during this interview, which I have tried to fix, but I can't. So I'm really sorry. Either skip through it, although you will miss some very fascinating stuff from Anita if you do. Otherwise, I would suggest just pretending that I interviewed her in a well, which is far more fun. There is also, during the beginning bit, something that sounds a little bit like someone fighting a wooden table. Uh, It's not too bad, and I don't think it will bother you, but I am very concerned about the table, and I really hope it's okay. So, here's the interview, echoes and all. So, can you tell me a little bit about uh, Disabled People Against Cuts? What have you been campaigning for? What's your aim? How long has it been going for? Well, it was formed by a group of disabled people um, after the 3rd of October 2010. There was mass, mass protests against cuts in Birmingham. And that was the, really the first mass protest against austerity cuts and their impact on disabled people. It was led under disabled people under the name of Dis- disabled people protest. And although it is, I mean, it is the disability organization, but which has been really kind of created because you could see what was happening and the direction uh, that all that was taking, all these cuts were going to take place, and especially were targeted specifically at disabled people. So since 2010, it was founded in 2010, and then since then you've campaigned against uh, a lot of different areas of the cuts. You uh, helped the UN start their investigation, didn't you, into whether the cuts were discriminatory? Yeah, that's right. I mean, DPAC does a lot of things. I mean, it does especially direct action, you know, something which is really visible and it takes disabled people in the street and to, to try to raise this issue among, um, for the public, you know. It does also, I mean, the, the, the UN report has been, um, you know, three years' work, 
and um, to try to actually, um, I mean, to, to have a, because the, the government keeps saying that, you know, they are putting all this money for disabled people, but actually what he has been doing is not only about money, it's about just taking back the rights of disabled people when they used to enjoy, you know, five years ago that they are not enjoying anymore. So that was really about that. So that's our right action to actually make the public aware of what's happening. That's the UN report um, and other bits of, of research and putting pressure on MPs and things like that. So it's, you know, very different. We all volunteers. We all have different skills and we are trying to use them as as well as possible. Sure, and it, it sounds like it's, it's a lot of work because there's an awful lot to campaign against, isn't there? Well, yes, I mean, in, in a way, and it's a very kind of unfair fight. I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of resources or whatever. What we have is, you know, the passion to fight and uh, the belief that we are right and what the government is doing is, is wrong. But, you know, it's a very unfair um, fight, really, against the government, which has the media on its side and a lot of money to, to campaign and everything. So do you feel, I mean, in the past week, there's been some really amazing breakthroughs, it seems, uh, with the Court of Appeal ruling that the bedroom tax was is discriminatory in two cases. Uh, and then, of course, there's been the House of Lords rejecting uh, the cutting of uh, the employment and support allowance. Do you sort of feel like this is progression? I don't know. I mean... Um... Uh, in terms of the bedroom tax, I think there have been real success here. I mean, although, you know, that does affect only two groups of people, the issue that the court focused on will affect, I think, everybody who actually requests for a discretionary housing payment. That's really where, um, that was for the government where he lost, basically, because they are discretionary, nobody can, you know can actually expect to, to get them. I mean, you have to request them, and most of them, most of the people who actually uh, ask them are being refused. The two people who actually won their case at the beginning, um, they didn't get the discretionary um, housing payment. It was refused. And that's on this point, really, that the court decided that it was discriminatory compared with uh, adult um, disabled people. But everybody who actually requests uh, this payment, I think, can take a case against the government now, if obviously the Supreme Court uphold the decision. So sure. we, we will have to see. But that is a brilliant development. And I'm really sorry that the government has to appeal against that because really it doesn't make sense. And, and you know, there's no, nobody wins here. So, you know, and these people are being put through already, you know, years of, of, of fight, um, legal challenge with the government. And it would have been just easier for the the government to say, okay, you know, let's accept. I think the real, the government realised that if you accept this case, you would have to accept an awful lot more. So that's sure. the issue for the, the DWP. So it would it will require people to take their individual cases, would it, for them to fight this? You don't think this will do anything towards actually changing how bedroom tax works? I don't know. It depends whether it's considered as being a, a test case, which means we should apply to only one group or we should apply to everybody. And that would be for the Supreme Court to decide... And after that, you know, if it's upheld and if there is a test case or not, will that would that would actually um, determine what other people who are affected by the bedroom tax can do? Right. I can't I can't I can't speculate at this stage, but I think because of the basis of you know on which the 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 fact that this this appeal has been uh, appalled, appalled on on the basis of this discretionary payment, I think it might actually just open the door to a lot more legal challenge. Sure, which would be great, obviously. Mm, yeah, of course, yes. Because it it seems incredibly petty that the government are, are fighting the decision. It just seems uh, almost as though they're just too. Um, what's the word? You know, they're too stubborn to say that they've made a mistake. That's it's. They won't back down. No, and I think it's really. It's more a political decision than just an economical one in terms of saving. It's not really saving any money. There's hardly any people moving a downgraded to a smaller house just because they don't exist. And they want to be seen to their electorate, uh, you know, as, as winning the welfare, the, 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 the welfare war. And therefore, they, you know, it is a political stand rather than an economical one. The, the bedroom tax is not winning, saving any money. And, and actually, when the, they did the impact assessment and when they calculated all the savings that um, the bedroom tax could bring, it was based on no tenants moving. 
So right. every time somebody moves, the government loses money, if you see what I'm saying. The, the overcrowding yeah. argument was a rubbish argument. That was not true. That was, you know, that's the kind of pretext they used. But, um, I mean, wh what it is about is really reducing the amount of money, benefit people receive. That's what sure. it's all about. Sure. And but yeah, to... it's, it's like, like you say, because I do remember reading that, A, there aren't smaller places to move people to because there's a shortage of housing. And yeah. B, they're being put into, is it B&Bs and hotels and things which cost more money? So... It's not benefiting anyone, is it, this bedroom tax? No, and if you take the Rutherford case, uh, one of the two cases, I mean, I mean the two cases, actually, I'm just saying this one because I know better the other one, but sure. the, the two, the two uh, houses have been specifically adapted for people. You move people somewhere else, you will still need to adapt the house. Sure. So, I mean, you know, there's no wins here, there's no saving, there's nothing. No. No, uh, but but it's quite a complicated. It's quite complicated, and uh, and and people don't really understand, you know, um, how it works, and therefore the principle So, you know, why should I pay for an extra bedroom? In many cases, it's never an extra bedroom. I mean, it's a bedroom that people need because they can't share, you know, uh, the the room with somebody who's disabled because the big, the bed is too big, or because the nature of the disability makes it impossible, or because they need to have a lift, or you know, they are really very very good and specific reason why these people have a second room which they really need and sometimes have it adapted. So it doesn't really make sense at all. It never did from the beginning. Sure. Because it, it, am I right in thinking it's about two-thirds of the people affected by bedroom tax uh, have disabilities? Is that correct? Well, that's two, yeah, that's two-thirds of the households affected right. have a disabled person in it, I mean, you know, which is the most correct way of saying it. But yes, sure. basically, that's exactly what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So this, so that is, the bedroom tax does really affect disabled people the most. I yeah, think. that's what, one of the cuts who actually, uh, yes, uh, affect them the most. And you know, the argument of the government is you can make up the, uh, you know, the loss. But that's, you know, that's really what disabled people can't do is to make up. They can't go out to work to make this loss. You know, yeah. and and therefore that's really. I mean, you affect, you affect them a lot more than any, anybody else who actually say, OK, or I would take a lodger or I would, you know, go and do a few hours. And it's not a few hours to actually compensate for that. But they just can't do it. Basically, that's, and you know, I mean, the government produced a report about a month ago saying that I think it's three quarters of the people who have been affected by that are, are in area. They are indebted, you know. Right. So it's, nobody, it's nobody's really advantage to do that, but... No. Well, that, that sort of leads me on to asking about the other cuts, because they all seem to be uh, taking money away from people, from disabled people. You know, the, the uh, employment and support allowance support being uh, cut or threatening to be cut uh, and independent living fund being cut. It just seems to be hindering the way that disabled people live and limiting how they live. Is that right? Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, I mean, the independent living fund was uh, set up specifically, and if I remember where, I think it was by Thatcher, so to actually allow disabled people to live as independently as non-disabled people, to have the same choice and anything like that. You know, that's what he was set up. And what the government said, it was to kind of simplify the system. But basically, what happened is they closed this fund and they just gave some money to the council, which is about, um, I can't remember the percentage, 90%, but maybe less, something like that. But already their package, um, you know, in the community have been, have been lost. I mean, some people have been reassessed and they used to have 49 hours of care and now they have half, somebody has one. And right. so, you know, you know, so people who, I mean, you know, they have to wait all day long to go to the loo, for example. Nobody's, you know, they get this 15 minutes or, and, and they can't go out anymore. And that's really what is the... the what he has taken away is really the independence of his people to socialize, to go out, to, you know, and, and I saw that the independent living fund had really big impact on that. And that's the first year where the money is more or less protected. From March uh, 2016, the council are going to decide totally the, um, how much people are going to get. And we are going to, we are monitoring it now, but we will right. certainly because we suspect it's going to be really much much worse so so and is that due to cuts to local councils so the local yeah. councils then taking it out on the yeah. support allowance is that what's happening there 
Well, yes, that's right, the care package, because uh, what was asked is actually this package to be, well, this money once given to the council to be ring fence under refuse. So the money is being diverted to what people think is more important. And, you know, I mean, I read in some newspapers, some councils, you know, cutting the grass was seen more important. But, you know, keeping a school open or, you know, whatever. I mean, all the needs of the disabled people are just, you know, put against needs of other people. And depends what the council priorities are. Why do you think that disabled being a, people are being targeted so much? Because it does seem, uh, I think I read a, a New Statesman article that had eight different uh, policies of the governments that are all affecting disabled people the most. Mm, that's right, what, yeah. Why do you think the government are targeting disabled people so highly? Do you think it's, they think it's an, they're an easy target or what's, what's the reason? I think, um, I mean, you know, they have been talking. Um, that's not something which is happening in the UK only, isn't it? But it is happening here um, more fiercely than anywhere else I can think of. I think that's the, the welfare bill which they have been looking at and um, saying, you know, it's getting too big, we need to do something about it. And they have been looking also at, I mean, you know, um, to be absolutely clear, during the 80s, um, the disability benefit were used to actually keep an employment low. And that has stayed in people's minds. And um, I think people still believe that, still believe that people who are disability benefit really don't, doesn't deserve to, 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 to be that. That has not changed. But I mean, the test which has been introduced, like the, the work capability assessment, has been a lot less stricter. And they have been reassessing that this huge program of reassessment where anybody, everybody who was on incapacity benefit has been reassessed with this stricter test because they've been saying, you know, out of these two million people, one million are able to, are fit for work, basically. Right. And after reassessing all, they found that 90% of these people were still entitled to their benefits. So I think they overestimated the number of people who were supposed to be fit for work. And, 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 you know, and they are stuck with that. But now what uh, uh, Duncan Smith is saying is not one million he wants to put to work, it's two millions. And that's impossible. I mean, the people who are there are actually really severely disabled or severely ill. Why yeah. targeted? I think because the, the I mean, because it was based on wrong assumptions that these people were, were capable of, of work. And and uh, and, uh, and you know and, and that, that's why and he hasn't he hasn't changed and there is this mantra you know work is good to you which is based on one report which has many many caveats and especially you need good work you need work which is well paid and you have to look also at the number of people who are sick because of their work so you know work is good for you not always but that is what driving the the government agenda and actually this you know I mean. This work capability assessment and the group where, which would have been affected by the £30 cut, these people are getting sicker because of the regime, which is, you know, the DWP regime is making harder. They are threatened with sanctions. They are being reassessed over and over and over. Mm. I mean, the system is absolutely, absolutely awful. And, um, you know, and I think with, you know, universal credit, I was just reading the regulation this morning is going to get a lot more worse, a lot worse. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I mean, that sounds like a huge mess of a scheme anyway. Uh, the universal credit sounds like a terrible, you know, I, I, again, that doesn't, it's, it's losing an awful lot of money already and it doesn't sound like it's going to be a benefit to anyone. So, yeah, well, completely. I mean, you know, from what I understood is this group, you know, the, this uh, work-related uh, activity group, which would have been affected by the 30 pounds, is going to disappear. And basically people are going to have a, a, a work capability assessment. People who are now in this group, and we have been found unfit for work, nobody is going to be found unfit for work. Everybody is mm. going to look at, be looked at as what can he do and how many hours can he, can he do. And the problem is in this group, you have people who have Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, cancer, severe mm. mental issues. These people are not going to be helped by, by work and they are not going to be helped by being threatened by, with sanctions and things like that. You sure. know, and, and that's a real worry. That's, it, it's just making people sick. 
We'll have more from Anita later in the podcast. But now, let me just search for something online. Hang on. Uh, hmm. Oh, wow. Look at today's Google Doodle. Oh, how sweet. It's little animation of the Google sign pissing unceremoniously over the UK. Oh. You know Google, right? That big company that basically rules the internet and knows more about most of you than you know about yourself. As a stand-up comedian, if I couldn't Google myself once in a while, I wouldn't know half of the abuse or poor reviews that I get. It's very, very useful. I mean, where would we be without being able to translate anything at the touch of a keyboard? Or turning your email Star Wars themed? Or finding out that even if you search for the symptoms of just having a paper cut, you'll be told that it could be cancer? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Google and the UK's tax authorities, HMRC, recently came to an agreement that they would pay £130 million in back taxes. £130 million sounds like a lot, right? I mean, just Google all the stuff you could buy for that amount. It is loads. Which is why George Osborne, the closest thing that we can get to a human-lizard hybrid, said that the agreement was a major victory. Except, really, it was more of a Pyrrhic victory than a major one, because between 2005 and 2014, Google made £24 billion of sales in the UK, and earned, this is according to a professor from the University of Essex, Prem Sikha, they earned roughly £7.2 billion in profits. I mean, Google what you could buy for that amount, it is even more stuff. Google have already paid about £70 million over the last 10 years in taxes, so overall they've paid about £200 million, which is the devastating figure of 2.8% of all their profits. Now, I have no clue about maths, and I had to Google all those workings out, but even I can see that for Google, 130 million in back taxes is one of the 88 million search results for the word peanuts to them. Corporation tax in the UK is 20%. But it's 20% of economic activity in the UK, not profits made on your sales. So that means, with a quick googling of how to shift your profits around and label them differently, those profits can look a lot smaller on HMRC paper. So what Google have done is legal tax avoidance, not illegal tax dodging. And there's the sort of fine line between those that's probably been drawn with invisible ink and has various people put in charge pretending that they can see it when it suits them to. Prime Minister David Cameron has stated that the UK government are continuing to crack down on tax avoidance. But by allowing large companies to pay a smaller tax percentage than small companies or individuals like you or me, it doesn't seem like a particularly good start. Not only that, but one of Cameron's hopes for EU reform is to ask the union to remove a blacklist of tax havens where companies like Google continuously funnel money to avoid paying even more corporation tax in the countries where they operate, like the UK. 
In Bermuda, for example, Google has amassed over £30 billion in profit. Isn't it amazing that it used to just be planes and boats that mysteriously disappeared in Bermuda, but now it's anything that you don't want to pay tax on? Other European countries, including France and Italy, have managed to get a lot more tax out of Google than we have, and apparently see the UK as a laughing stock because of it. Which goes to show that the stereotype that many across the channel don't have a sense of humour isn't true at all. It's just that it's hard to see the punchline when you're often it. David Cameron said in Prime Minister's Questions last week that the current Conservative government was still doing more to reclaim corporation tax than the last Labour government ever did. Which is sort of true. Because Gordon Brown introduced a 0% tax rate for corporation profits under 10 grand. But with this Google deal, the government really haven't improved on tax policing much at all. So David Cameron's main argument appears to be, we've not done well, but you didn't do well first, ha! If your job was to clean up, and you didn't bother because the person before you didn't clean either, I can't imagine you'd be seen as a roaring success. Former Chancellor Lord Lawson says corporation tax should be replaced with taxing UK profits from sales. Which could work and is pretty much what the EU Tax Avoidance Commission have suggested as well. But until that happens, if it happens, the problem is still that nothing that Google have done is illegal. Nor does it seem entirely in the government's interests to make it so. In an interview from 2006, Cameron complained that Google had moved their main HQ to Dublin because the UK wasn't tax competitive enough. Well, it seems we're now definitely at least in for a bronze. So why, as someone tweeted at me with all capital letters this week, should Google have to pay more taxes than they're legally required to? Well, with the UK deficit rising and tax avoidance costing taxpayers billions per year, it means that everyone else is stumping up for what they're avoiding. So I guess they don't have to, but it would be really nice if just once in a while they bother to Google the word morality. Here's part two of my interview with Anita Bellows from DPAC. This part contains a little more echo. Sorry, 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 sorry. Because there have been people that have been that have that have died going back to work, haven't there? Is that right? There've been deaths from people returning to work prematurely. I'm sure I read about that. Well, there have been people, the suicide of people who actually um, have been found fit for work and lo- lose all their benefits. There have been yeah. death suicide of people who have been sanctioned. Uh, I mean, you know, there is, and there is a, um, a survey which has been done by um, Oxford um, academics and who have looked specifically where people have been reassessed. And they said, you know, we can't, do, we can't make a causal link, but we can make a link and a, a valid link between the mm. fact that there has been, I think it was 590 suicides more in the places where this reassessment took place. Wow, 590, and, did you say? Yeah, 590, That's just under 600 suicides so more than in places where this reassessment didn't happen. And it was, very, uh, it was a very scientific um, uh, a study, and they're saying, you know, you can't, we can't establish a causal link, but a contributory, you know, it, it would have been what they are saying, it was a contributory factor to the suicide, and that's what yeah. we have said also. For you know, we have two, I mean, you have plenty, you read in the newspaper, and you have cases, you know, somebody committed suicide, and the coroner says that, you know, the fact that he loses benefit, but there's been two coroners who wrote a specific report. Which is, yeah. called, which is called a, preven- a preventable future death report to DWP saying if the system continues like that, it's going to have more suicide. And because we are in a small community, and on Twitter especially, you hear about there's a lot of suicide will happen. A lot of people yeah. who, come, who, who doesn't succeed, but, you know, attempt suicide or whatever. Or you have a lot of people who actually just, you know, their mental health really just deteriorate because of what's happening. So it has a huge toll on the health of people who already are not in good health. You're talking about people being forced back into work when they aren't able to. Uh, am I right in also thinking that the government's closed a lot of access centres so the few people that could get back to work aren't, don't have that support there either? Well, that's right. I mean, there was the, uh, this uh, scheme which is called Access to Work, 
and who has been helping, for example, um, deaf people with interpreters or, you know, paying also the employers to have some kind of adjustment in the workplace to help them. And what they are doing is actually to give money to more people, the less money. Hmm. And what it does, well, what it's doing is actually affecting people who used to get it before. They are uh, getting less money, so they can't buy as many hours of interpreters, for example, or right. things like that. And they can't carry on working. So it is, uh, you know, although it is giving a smaller, uh, I mean, the, the pot has got bigger, but it's being spread much thinner and is really, a, a, it's a cut. It, it's, it is a real cut in, in, in real terms, you know, for, for the people who used to get access to work. And, you know, there's also the, the fact, for example, that um, uh, you have, I mean, it, it seems to be a, a kind of side issue, but it's not. The fact that now, if you want to take a case against your employer, you have to pay, you have fees. And the number wow. of, uh, you know, numbers of employment uh, tribunal uh, cases has fallen by 90%, basically. And it means that people who are discriminated in, in the workplace can't really just, you know, take their case. It just also means that the employers know that they can discriminate, really, without any kind of a... And so it's happening more and more that. I mean, you know, that's the, 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 the fact that uh, the government is seen as, you know, just not helping people staying into work or fighting against discrimination just means that it's easier to discriminate. So, it, you know, disabled people who are working are attacked a little also from different direction. Yeah. Uh, oh. And, uh, 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 for example, also the transfer from um, DLA, Disability Living Allowance, onto PIP, um, PIP, I mean, you know, the mm. personal independence payment, just mean that people didn't get uh, the highest component of the mobility and they're losing their, their, their ability to, to travel, you know, their mobility um, scooters or things like that. That's, you know, they used to go to work. So, I mean, it's just all, you know, it's a attacks from so many corners. Yeah, yeah. And it just seems to be forcing people that, so getting rid of their social life, their ability to go out, it's forcing people to stay in. And then when they stay in, they're being taxed on an extra bedroom that they need so there doesn't seem to be any way out of it it's really that's horrible right. and they are, i mean you know when we talk about uh, this money that's not very much i mean if you are in a support group in the uh, employment and support allowance is 100 pounds per per week so that's hardly you know the and they wanted to reduce this amount to the job seeker allowance which is all just over 70 70 pounds i mean it's really people can't and you know there have been surveys done and people can't even survive on that that's just really not enough yeah that's that's not anywhere near sort of living is that near living wage at all i, I suppose not if you need extra care and extra support yeah, no, I, I, I'm not sure, actually. I just never really thought... Uh, mm. No, I mean, if you work and you have... The, well, it depends how many hours you work. Sure. But, I mean, that's what the... I mean, it is what the state decides uh, is necessary to live. And when you ask, the, it, it, it is a figure which is plucked out of thin air because there's no rationally. I mean, you can say, you know, it's based on the... Um, a consumer basket going to the to know what you need to eat or whatever. Mm. No, they give you this money and they say you do whatever you want with it, and I can promise you one thing: it doesn't seem that you can do very much. At yeah, all. sure, sure. So, so what are the next big steps uh, that that need to be taken in order to kind of uh, deal with this targeting of people uh, of disabled people? What's what what are the next steps that DPAC are looking at doing? Well, I mean. I mean, we have to reflect on what happened this week. I mean, you know, the, what is quite incredible is you have, you know, what is behind this government and disabled people is an, an, an elected chamber who actually, actually, because, you know, the, the, the House of Commons has voted in favour of the welfare reform. They just didn't really look at the details. That they put sure. some amendments which were refused. So the House of Lords is, for the time being, you know, the one which, um, I mean, has been really thorough and I've been really looking at the issues. And um, I, anyway, I put some spanner in the government's work. I yeah. suppose now we need to go back to the House of Commons, the, the MPs, and really convince them because this, obviously, this uh, £30 cut is going to go back in front of the House of Commons. We need to convince more people, more MPs, Labour. Uh, liberal and, and conservative if we can, that, you know, that should not happen. And I think we need also 
to make more noise about it. I mean, we have been doing that, but people are not really interested, you know. I mean, I think disabled people are seen as other people, I mean, not like us. Well, actually, you know, I mean, that, and especially when you get older, I mean, you are bound to get a disability, you are bound to get sick, whatever. So it really should affect everybody. Yeah, and just people don't people don't look at, at that that way. And I think there's been so many lies uh, which has been told by by the government, by the, the press, but by the government, which has been feeding this information to the press that, you know, we need to try to, to show. So, I mean, I think what we are going to do is to carry on what we have been doing before and to try to show and evidence, really, the damage that these reforms are, are doing uh, on, on disabled people. Yeah, I, I was talking to someone uh, recently who, who was saying that I, and I think I agree with them on this, that there's so many cuts in so many areas of welfare that people are being quite selfish, you know, and forgetting about other people that are also suffering under them. I mean, uh, I suppose a, a benefit of news stories this week, apart from obviously having some uh, benefit of, you know, saving those families from the bedroom tax or having the ESA uh, cuts rejected from the House of Lords. It's also that it gives people an awareness uh, that these cuts are still happening. Do you think that, I know you said that it's um, it's hard to get people to be aware of this, but do you think it's it's beginning to happen? Do you think that, that there's a, an increase in the awareness of, of how disabled people are affected by all of this? I think there is, but I think in the mind of, and I don't know how many people, but they, you know, they see it as justified. So, and I don't think that you are going to convince people. But yes, we need to actually, we need to actually just get it more out. You know, I mean, we need to talk more about that. And I think what is a little bit uh, specific for DPAC is we are. I mean, although it is led by disabled people and done by disabled people, we are not only looking at disabled people. We are looking at the the, the cuts, you know, and what's happening in the job centres. Are the job seekers mm. also are being affected by sanction? How they are le- led to destitution? You know, we are looking at welfare people who have to work for 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 free. You know, I mean, basically, I mean, if you're not free for their benefits, which is about one pound an hour. Yeah, I mean, we are, which also undermine, you know, the, the wages of the the rest of people in 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 the UK. So, you know, we are also, you know, it, it is a disability issue is also a human rights issue which affects other people, and we are encompassing, you know, taking these people on too. I mean, we are looking at these issues, and also an area which also is of interest of. Uh, um, uh, to DPAC is the fact that in job centres now there's going to be some kind of mental health specialists who are going to try to make people better in order for them to go to work and that is a very big worry for us because we don't want the kind of a relationship between uh, a, a doctor um, and, and a patient to be compromised by this kind of thing so we are looking also uh, that's another issue we are looking at. So, so those people would just be able to assess someone and decide right you can go back to work now is no, 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 no. They are going to receive a special kind of treatment. I right. mean, you know, I mean, they are going and, and a job center, as, as far as I understand, are going to offer uh, online uh, CBT, which is uh, cognitive behavior treatment, which is a very cheap treatment, but which is not always effective. And sometimes it's damageful. And so we don't really want people who are not trained or badly trained or who have an agenda, which is to put back putting people back to work. Yeah. I mean, people should get better for the sake of getting better. Of course. Not for just being, you know, going back to work. And, and so that's what we're worried about is this, uh, you know, where um, job centres are, are likely to become also treatment centres. And that shouldn't happen. Not that way. Not with the government, um, you know, the way the government is looking at things is very dangerous. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, like you say, with... If their main priority is to get people back into work, it, it's hard to trust their assessments correctly, isn't it? Or the treatment. Yeah, that's right. Of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for talking to me. And, uh, you know, Deepak are doing brilliant work and I wish you all the success uh, with it in the future. Hopefully the, the last week's events will do something uh, towards turning these cuts around. Um, I've got one last question for you. Um, if you were able to give Ian Duncan Smith or Lloyd Freud a work capability assessment, what would your verdict be? Well, you know what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Unfit for work, obviously. (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) Who is Lloyd Freud? Why did I say that instead of Lord Freud? 
Though, I did look up Lloyd Freud, and he's a US musician who makes psychedelic tunes, and after having a listen, I'd say he's not really fit for work either. Thanks to Anita for our excellent chat. She can be found on Twitter at AnitaBellows12. That's B-E-L-L-O-W-S-12. And you can also follow DPAC at D-I-S underscore P-P-L underscore protest or on their website at dpac.uk.net. Since speaking to Anita, it's been reported that the DWP will be spending more to appeal the bedroom tax ruling than it would be to abide by it. Essentially, they'll be paying extra to make certain people poorer. Last year at the Conservative conference, Ian Duncan Smith made a big speech about finding the root cause of poverty. Well, I hope he hasn't ruled himself out of being one of the main culprits. Two different newspapers last week gave completely different headlines on the same day. Which might not sound that unusual, but they were both about exactly the same story. One suggested that the Prime Minister had said that the UK would take in 3,000 unaccompanied refugee children. And the other said that he'd rejected calls to do exactly that. In a total press anomaly, both were sort of right. David Cameron has said that the UK will take in refugee children from Syria, but it won't take any from Europe, as he wouldn't want to create a perverse incentive for them to come to European countries. Other than, you know, it's a place that Europeans aren't currently bombing. It's a strange line of thought, pretending that rejecting refugees is for their own good. But it's one that the government's done before. In 2014, the Home Office said they wouldn't rescue shipwrecked or drowning migrants because it would just encourage more to do anything they can to escape their war-torn terrifying lives for survival. As though these people wouldn't have contemplated crossing the channel before, but as one of their chums had had a rocky start and then a lovely ride on a navy boat, hey, I'll give it a go. I mean, why don't the government use this sort of thinking in other areas of policy? For example, why try and save Ebola or Zika victims? Surely it just encourages other people to get it. These news stories came a day after David Cameron referred to a bunch of migrants when speaking about Jeremy Corbyn's visit to Calais. Corbyn had said that the conditions in the refugee camp at Calais were dreadful and disgraceful with little access to food and no access to medical care. Plus, he said, no clear cycle lanes, which upset him quite a lot. So, at Prime Minister's questions on Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day that warns against the poisonous words and passive acceptance of discrimination, which marked the beginning of the Holocaust, David Cameron spoke of Corbyn's visit as Jezza meeting with a bunch of migrants. Now... Bunch itself isn't a terrible word. I mean, the Munch Bunch, for example, were some of the happiest animated pieces of fruit that you'll ever see. But it was the condescending manner in which it was said. And David Cameron also knows that refugees don't have an official collective term because no one in a powerful position has ever cared about them enough to make one. It seems bizarre that the Prime Minister wants to add to the bombing of Syria, but then doesn't want to help provide homes to any of those that are displaced by the bombings. It's a bit like a global version of the bedroom tax, to be honest. It also doesn't make much sense that ISIS are the enemy, but we don't want to help people fleeing them. So it turns out that your enemy's enemy isn't a friend at all. It's just a sort of associate that you might try and avoid making eye contact with at a party. If you invite them to the party at all. There's so much anti-refugee rhetoric in the UK at the moment. And it's not just the UK either. Denmark has just voted to confiscate belongings and assets from refugees seeking shelter so that they can pay their way towards staying in the country. I don't know what would be more welcoming than fleeing a war zone, risking your life and then turning up to a safe place and having to hand over the very last things you own in life. That's a luxury holiday right there. You wonder if Denmark's next policies are to ensure all candy is stolen from babies and anyone down is immediately kicked. Of course, it's not quite as black and white a policy as that, but again, it just reinforces the image of refugees taking from us rather than desperately needing our help. The current refugee crisis is only going to get worse, with more and more displaced families every single day. So a solution has to be found. And treating other human beings as subhuman isn't the way forward. Why do they have to come over here? People say, as if 
a war broke out here, they just happily stand still until they died. It's not the way to look at it. Plus, I'm sure that those same people that complain about refugees would be more upset if those refugees didn't want to come here. Yeah, Syria is awful, but Britain? Nah, mate, I've heard it's terrible. After the breakup of Yugoslavia, Britain took in 84,000 refugees, and in the last 12 months alone, we've taken in 25,000 asylum seekers. The Home Office has several housing provisions in place, and various experts say that feasibly, the UK could take 320,000 refugees without it being even the slightest of burden on our society. So really, the UK should help take them in from wherever we can, and try and see this situation as what it is. Other human beings in need of help. Helping a bunch of humans really doesn't sound too bad, does it? And that's all for this week's episode of Partly Political Broadcast. Next week's episode is probably going to be a little bit late and maybe a little bit short as well uh, as I'm off to Belgium for most of this week. I'm not there to do any sort of EU renegotiations uh, and I promise that I will actually bring something back from the table, although it will just be something nice for my girlfriend, I expect, like chocolate. Uh, No, instead, I'm over there doing some gigs. In English, not in Flemish. I know, going to a country expecting to do work and not learning the language, what would our Prime Minister think? So, we'll have to wait and see what I manage to do, but I promise there will be something next week. Thanks again tons and tons for listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please do subscribe, uh, share it with other people, let other people know that it's happening, give it a nice lovely rating on iTunes. Why not just play it loud on buses in that irritating way? You can follow us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash parpolbro, on Twitter at parpolbro, and you can email us any suggestions for things you'd like me to waffle on about or people you'd like me to interview at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Tura! ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.